And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Our guest tonight, Athena Dean Holtz, co-founder of Wine Press Publishing and now leading Redemption Press, very aptly named. She's got a new book out called Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. Athena, we were mentioning before the break how that it was about three circles, uh, three cycles rather, that you were involved with the Church of Scientology, and, and eventually were able to pull away from there. And I don't want to make this entire conversation tonight about Scientology, but I'm just curious. Given how challenging it can be for that to happen, and I think a lot of folks don't understand uh, uh, Scientology um, thoughts about SPs or suppressive persons and, uh, in, in many senses, losing friends and even family when leaving Scientology, how difficult Ultimately, then, was it for you to extract yourself from Scientology? Well, it was uh, difficult because we had not only a lot of family involved, but we also had a lot of people that worked for us who were Scientologists. So not only did they all quit, uh, our children got kicked out of the school they went to, which was a Scientology school, uh, which we went to the newspapers on. We weren't afraid to confront that um, like we would have been prior to that. Um, But, you know, we had to just be willing to uh, walk away from all the friendships that we have had because, I mean, it was just, it got to the place where, okay, uh, we just can't, we can't endorse a lie anymore. Now that we know, that we know, that we know this is a lie, we're done. We discussed the fact that in your formative years as a child, uh, probably the, the the closest you had to an association with organized religion um, was your grandmother, who was a unity pastor down in Southern California. At what point did you in your life, Athena, begin to explore the claims of Christ? Well, I did not hear the gospel until I was 33 years old. So I had not heard it at all, never went to VBS or Awana or anything like that. And actually was in a... um, I was in an insurance and securities company, very successful. I was making big money doing that, but God had put me in a place where I was surrounded by Christians, and at that point in my life, I thought Christians were wimps, and that, I mean, I was pretty much a God-hater. I just, I don't need that. I'm successful. I'm making big money. Of course, all my relationships were a mess, but I (laughs) thought I was doing just fine, so it was amazing how God put me in that place to where, and then worked the situation so that Chuck and I were on the edge of divorce. I had, he, you know, it, it, there's too much to go into it right now, what led up to that, but it was finally, okay, we're done. And he got saved, and I saw such a change in him that I, just not even realizing I was saying it, said, well, maybe maybe we can put divorce on hold and try again. And God just began to do, I mean, my friend sent me a copy of um, Mere Christianity. I don't remember a thing that I read, but all I remember was that I, I knew I needed a Savior. As much as I think I had it all together, which was a, a total lie, uh, that was what broke my heart. And so when I... When I got saved, it was a major transformation at that point, at age 33, and away we went into full-time ministry way too soon, working for 
Point Man Ministries and working with Vietnam veterans and their family members. And that really set me up, I think, for the next deception that came along because I really didn't have a strong foundation. And the irony, and some listeners that are not familiar, Athena, with your story will get a bit of a chuckle out of this, um, in that you got involved with a church based there in Washington State uh, <laughs> whose whose title was Sound Doctrine, but whose teaching apparently was anything but. How did you, I was going to say come across the path, but I would maybe more aptly put, um, how did you fall into the snare of Tim Williams? Well, what's interesting was he was very clever about putting people that were under his influence in places of credibility. And his wife was helping with the Right to Publish conference at Wheaton College that was started by Moody Bible College. And that's where I met her. I used to speak and be on faculty at that conference every year. And she was helping the conference director. And so there was automatically a level of credibility that she never should have had, but she did. And she began to tell me, oh, my husband's got this really edgy book. And, you know, I just don't think the traditional publishers are spiritual enough to really understand uh, where he's going. So I, you know, it was just a total schmooze, really, that... She flattered me into thinking, you know, wow, we have some, we can perceive uh, truth where others can't. I mean, that was, it, it really, their whole thing, and I think cults do that anyway. They appeal to your pride. And there's, because, enough oh, of the, and there's enough of an element of truth in there to give it an air of legitimacy. Absolutely. And as you suggest, uh, the, the, the Williams has surrounded themselves at the periphery with enough legitimate people, enough of a brush with legitimacy that would make even the casual observers say, well, this must be okay. You've just made, just named inside of five seconds two major respected Christian universities in this country. Certainly there can't be anything wrong with that. And of course, as we all know, people that are really close to God, they are the ones for whom God has revealed his most intimate Secrets. I mean, after all, wasn't it John on the Isle of Patmos that received the revelation? Wasn't it um, um, Paul who, who who gave us two thirds of the New Testament? My goodness! So you must have it must have appealed at a certain level then to 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 the flesh. Absolutely, absolutely. And because I had no foundation, I didn't know the difference between scripture in context and scripture out of context. So here Tim Williams comes along, quotes Scripture every other sentence out of his mouth. He's quoting a Scripture to back up what he just said. Well, I didn't know that half the time they were out of context and didn't even apply. So to me, that intimidated me into thinking, wow, my first 13 years as a Christian was lame. It was like not even real Christianity, because this guy knows what real Christianity is because of all these scriptures he can spout, and all, you know, it was just, it, it was just insidious, really, uh, way of making people feel like uh, we're not as spiritual as they are, and so they have the answer, and so we have to do whatever God tells us through them. 
And the notion that nobody else would publish ultimately what became his infamous book, Hating for Jesus, the fact that nobody else would publish it was seen as, well, this is a, this is a badge of honor here because we're going we're gonna to tell a truth that nobody else is bold enough, faithful enough, or trusting of God enough to tell. Once that book went public and the firestorm of controversy began swelling around not only Williams, the sound doctrine, quote-unquote, church, better cult, the controversial book, and ultimately you as the publisher, at what point did you begin to think, um, this is coming off the rails here, maybe there's another story to this story that we're not aware of? I completely never came to that conclusion because they had already sown into my thoughts, you know, if anybody doesn't agree with this, they don't really love God. They're on the wide road headed for destruction. We are on the narrow road. We're obeying God. They don't really want God. They're an idolater. They need to repent. We need to stand against them and cut them off so that they will come to repentance. They had already poured all of that into me, so if anyone even looked at me cross-eyed about the title or the content, I would be indignant. It was crazy. And, and it's interesting to note the similarities between how all of that was handled by Williams in, in, in preparing, inoculating, we might even call it, against mm-hmm. criticism in in this situation and how very shockingly or frighteningly similar that is to the methodology used by the Church of Scientology, the whole, you know, suppressive person business and intimidating people, family members, you know, lawsuits, all of that, same thing. Well, if you don't believe, you don't embrace, then then you're clearly a heretic or you're you're just not open enough to the truth. Exactly. And so when I finally blew the whistle and walked away 12 years after losing everything to them, uh, the, the lawsuit, the threats of lawsuits to anybody who would, ex, you know, share my side of the story, they got sued, they got threatened to be sued. Uh, every writer's conference I ever went to got a letter saying, if you have her come back, we're going to sue you. I mean, it, it, they're like, they think they're above the law, just like Scientology. If you've just tuned in, we're visiting tonight with Athena Dean Holtz. Her book is called Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. Now, if you've been listening to this since we began our conversation a half hour ago, you might be thinking, what a spiritual train wreck. And though the irony is that this, uh, to one degree or another, is, uh, Scripture tells us, uh, but for the grace of God, right, that, that those having itching ears. So we need to guard our hearts our souls, our minds, and we need to be steeped in the Word of God so that we can be truth-tellers, fact-checkers, and understand that there is a reason why God says that there needs to be a separation of the wheat and chaff. We're going to come back to more of Athena's story and bring you full circle to where she's at today, how she eventually came out of the cult called Sound Doctrine. Isn't that a kick? and what the Lord's doing in her life right now in 2017, as our conversation continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Some might call it a bit, uh, well, schizophrenia on the spiritual journey that Athena Dean Holtz has been on, from a brush with unity as a child. Her grandmother had been a unity preacher and teacher down in Southern California to almost a dozen years involved with the Church of Scientology, then leaving the church, having an encounter with Jesus Christ, being involved in very stand-up ministry organizations. Uh, We mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the involvement with Point Man Ministries, and then getting involved, sadly, with yet another false teacher that led to a great deal of heartache. And for you, Athena, when when did the... um, when did the egg fall and break and spill the yolk all over the, the table for you, or all over the floor, rather? And were there times in this journey, particularly after the negative experience that you had with uh, Tim Williams, that you thought, this God stuff has got to be a bunch of hooey, and and consider just giving up on any thought of being involved in, in quote-unquote, religion or spirituality? Absolutely. In fact, you know, the 12 years that I spent in Sound Doctrine, most of that time uh, alone, because they'd talk me into divorcing my husband in Jesus' name and not talking to my kids for 12 years, huh. because they were idolaters, so have nothing to do with them. Uh, you know, every time I pointed out something that looked wrong, it always got turned back on me. Oh, you've just got a bitter root, and you need to get the log out of your eye. Uh, don't look at the speck in my eye. I mean, typical abuser behavior that always, you know, like the guy who beats his wife up and then turns it around, well, if you'd have had dinner done on time, I wouldn't have gotten angry. That whole mentality was the entire, I mean, they use scriptures out of context like, uh, well, you know, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, so learn from this. So I'm flogging myself for 12 years saying, okay, Lord, I want to please you, I want to do what's right, okay, if this is who you've put in my life, then I want to submit to that. You know, so it was all zeal without knowledge. And, and so a lot sounds like, and, and, from, and from what they were dishing out, both Tim Williams as well as what happened at the hands of Scientology, a lot of fear, intimidation, and manipulation being used to control you. Absolutely. Absolute bullying. And in the name of God... <laughs> And so, yeah, by, by the time I turned the company over to them, $3.5 million, 20-year-old company, turned it over to them for 10 bucks, thinking it was my gift to God. And the next year, spending, uh, you know, they cut my pay in half, and they cut me down to minimum wage, and they, they had me cleaning toilets, you know, thinking it was discipline from the Lord. I finally did say, you know what, if this is God, I don't want him. I really did come to that place, and it was, it was pretty much at that time that the enemy, the Satan, overplayed his hand, and uh, after they'd gotten everything from me, the company, my car, my house, everything, and my credit was ruined, uh, they said I owed the use tax on all the assets, almost $150,000 worth of assets that got transferred from me to them, buyer to seller, well, that sales tax or use tax is supposed to be paid by the buyer, not by the seller. But they convinced me that my gift to God, uh, that I would cover that $15,000 as if I had any place to get it, which I didn't. So, I mean, at that point, I said, look, 
I can't get this money for you. I don't want anything to happen to Winepress. I don't want them to go after Winepress. So is there someone who could sign, you know, co-sign for me so I can borrow this money and pay it? Two days later, I got a letter certified from their lawyer that said, if this is not taken care of and you don't follow through with your agreement within the next so many days, we will take further action. I'm like, excuse me? Uh, isn't there a scripture that says you're not supposed to sue a brother or sister? <laughs> and that's when the light started coming on, and I realized, okay, I- I'm done. I'm just done. I called my son. I said, where are you? I'm coming. And two day- And I really did think I was walking away from God, because I looked at that and said, if that's God, I, I-, I, don't-, I, don't, wanna- I don't want him. I- no, I'm done. So my son takes me to a lawyer to talk about bankruptcy because we didn't, you know, I mean, it was just a train wreck. And this guy looked at the sale paperwork and just said, this is fraud. This is a sham. This, I mean, every page he turned, he was shaking his head saying, I can't believe they did this to you. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, that wasn't God. That was a gross misrepresentation of who God is. So that was a good thing. I have to wonder, in, in the roots of a lot of all of this, early on in the book, you talk about, as, as a young girl, teenager, you were involved in equestrian sports. There was much where you sought to find, uh, to achieve, rather, your your father's approval, which is normal for any kid. But I, I have to wonder if part of this, wanting to be pleasing or kind of going along with the party line, whether it was being uh, metered out by the sound doctrine cult or by the Scientologists, was at some level an effort to try to gain a, a sense of approval, if not by your earthly father, by your heavenly father? Exactly. So I was looking at, I was looking for that approval in unhealthy ways and in the wrong place. And that's just what's so incredible about how I could get to such utter devastation and absolutely having lost everything, how God's love for me and approval and my significance and purpose in Him was able to be redeemed and revived and healed and i mean it's just been over the last five years been totally blown my mind how god has taken what you know put most people absolutely hard-hearted and never want to talk about god again never want to be involved in anything having to do with church how god took that and still was able to use it to give hope to others. Now, some people, listening here, some people listening, uh, Athena, are going to say, this This is the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers, <laughs> <laughs> which would give folks a good reason to go out and get a copy of your book to hear the whole story. But in, in a minute or two that we have left, uh, walk me through that, that conclusion, that, that closing of the circle. After having gone through all of that, what eventually led you back to the Lord and got you rooted in sound teaching and in in solid biblical doctrine for the first time in your life? Well, it was, I think the turning point was me asking the question, what was wrong with me? What did I do to open the door for the enemy to deceive me the way he did, to the point where I 
believed a lie was the truth for 12 years and gave up everything for it? That was a good question to ask, because then I could take ownership and see where I was vulnerable, and some of it was my own doing. And so to take, you know, I could have pointed the finger at him, because what he did was evil. But I had to know, was there something I needed to take responsibility for and be willing to own? And from that point, my growth in him and my uh, just restoration in him was like leaps and bounds because I, I didn't just get bitter and, you know, blow, blow off God. I saw my part and I began to grow and I got counseling and I started going to a, an evangelical free church right here in town who, by the way, I'm now the pastor's wife because his wife of 49 years told me before she ever got sick, you know, I told Ross, if anything ever happens to me, he needs to marry you. <laughs> which freaked me right out. Hadn't been on a date in 14 years when she said that to me. And uh, I went to Texas to take care of my mom, and while I was there, she uh, was diagnosed with cancer and died very quickly, wrote a list, told Ross, you know, you need to get married. You've been married 49 years. You need someone to take care of you. And, you, and here's my list for you. And I was number one on the list. And it's like a modern-day Cinderella story. I mean, it really is. He is just the perfect, solid, not a controlling person, but strong in his faith. He's been in ministry 40 years, and he's well-respected in the city gates in this little town of Enumclaw and was one of the first pastors who got all the phone calls from all these distraught parents whose children were now in this cult. So talk about a full circle. That's a huge one. Well, it also demonstrates that God is not only a God of a great sense of humor, but a God of forgiveness and restoration. The book is called Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God by Athena Dean Holtz. And as we mentioned, newly published by Redemption Press. You can get it at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and through Athena's website, Athena Dean Holtz, H-O-L-T-Z dot com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America. And that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church 
and most specifically, how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church, and most importantly, Christianity at the core, to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working. But that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across, uh, across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing a quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things 
that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in, in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much onto something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on Uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned, We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well, But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on came, and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be embedded at a certain time. And we understand that part of this 
this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost... And, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of <laughs> we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, and so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here? Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II, and and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything. And yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, uh, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the, the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, yep. I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, 
when we have a church that's so separate separated and segmented by generations, and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But yeah, I think how you phrased it, it that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah. Is it okay if I tell you a short story Please. about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding, and 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old, uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, and the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about, and we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace, as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the 
Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.